Hello, hello. I am Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, where music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, and other interesting human beings dive deep into the story beyond the surface. We are a completely independent platform, and there are a few ways in which you can support this podcast. Number one, you can subscribe, leave a review, and rate us on the iTunes store. This helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people will find out about these conversations. Number two, you can tell a friend, write a blog post, and tag us on social media. I promise we will get back to you. And number three, you can slide us some dollar bills with the support link in the description of this podcast. All production, equipment, and travel expenses are paid out of pocket, and a few bucks does go a long way. Now on to this week's episode. This time, Cole Kuchna, host of the Dissect podcast, sat down with us. Dissect is one of the most popular podcasts out there today. In Cole's words, Dissect picks one album per season and analyzes one song per episode, measure by measure, word by word. Last year, Dissect got picked up by Spotify and Cole now makes a living off of creating the show, which puts him in an elite group of podcasters. But that was far from the case at the start of Dissect. Cole started the first season with Kendrick Lamar in his basement while caring after a family and working full-time as the creative director of a local coffee shop. He somehow managed to spend 20 hours outside of all of those responsibilities on each episode to get it just right. 20 hours for each episode for the love of the podcast, doing everything himself. And he had no idea how big this would become. I'm a regular listener of the Dissect podcast, and it was an honor to speak with Cole for over an hour. It is not an exaggeration. I can't speak. It is not an exaggeration to say that Cole is changing the culture. As someone who makes a living off of doing what he loves, Cole is someone that I look up to, and I'm grateful that we had this conversation. I hope that this episode can add a little bit to your perspective and without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Cole Kushner. Do you finish the entire season now before you put it out? No, but it's more, it's definitely more leeway than I used to have. I would say this time it was like half the season was done and then I published episode mm-hmm. one. Season five, I'm actually trying to do 90%, if not all of it. So. Um, It'll just give me flexibility to do other things because there's not this huge deadline always looming. So that's my goal now this season is to get way ahead this time. Did you take time though to give yourself a break after season four? No. Kind of relax a little bit or you just went right into it? (laughs) Go right in. I'm like a workaholic. So I just go straight into the next one. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of season four with Flower Boy, Tyler, the creator, I think that would be a great place to start since he just dropped Igor. He's coming out with an interesting collaboration with Lacoste that I saw him posting about. And I just read that he also has an ice cream collaboration, which is pretty cool. I've, I've never really seen a someone in his lane do something like that. But it seems like that's a common thread with a lot of the, the albums that you dissect that the person that creates the music is not just an artist in the musical sense of the word, but someone who's an all-around 
creative? Is that is that something that you take into account when you're trying to decide on which albums to dissect? Not specifically, but I would say to create the kind of albums that I dissect, typically the artist is transcends music to, and that's because they're just a great artist in general. So, you know, Kanye obviously has very influential shoe line. Tyler's creating, mm-hmm. doing everything from scoring the or doing theme music for the Grinch to yeah, doing ice cream. Mm-hmm. Kendrick, I would say, is the most traditional in terms of he's very seems very strictly focused on just music and doesn't really dabble as much in other other endeavors. And he's more a traditional rap artist in that way, I think. And I think mm-hmm. he that's why his music is. I wouldn't say it's better or, or I don't, but I would say lyri- as far as his mm-hmm. lyrics and the, the narratives that he's able to construct, you can tell that his focus is uh, solely on music. Frank Ocean may be similar to that as well. Yeah, it seems like he drops off the map a lot, which I guess that's just part of his process. Yeah, I just think he was never from day one very interested in in doing the whole fame thing. So he was pretty expertly skirted that from day one, um, which I 100% understand. So what stood out to you about Flower Boy when you were trying to decide what albums to basically spend the next five to six months of your life with? Because you're, you're, it sounds like you're pretty much doing research and, and creating these episodes and it takes up a huge portion of your time. And you essentially have to sit down face to face with the work for for months straight. What what stood out to you about Flower Boy that made it worth the endeavor for you as as something to put all that time into? Yeah, I mean, Flower Boy, I think was the. Well, I wanted to do it ever since it came out. It was just I just thought it was a great album. It had a great narrative. It had all the elements that you'd want for, you know, that makes a good dissection. I think. Tyler is probably the artist that is, I think it's changed now since Igor, but at the time of the release of Flower Boy, although that did kind of help him ascend to a higher level of artistry in people's eyes, I feel like he was still not seen on the level as a Kendrick or a Kanye or a Frank Ocean, you know, these artists that I did previously. And part of selecting him was kind of doing my part to help him with that ascension because I just really believed in him as an artist. I believed in Flower Boy as a record. And I just saw his story was so interesting how he got famous young and kind of gained this reputation when he was a teenager, just kind of doing shit that teenagers do. But, you know, obviously had this huge platform to share his kind of antics with. And that I feel like has overshadowed his artistry where now he's very focused it seems like just purely on his craft and on his creations and you don't really hear the antics or you know there's really no no antics anymore so for all those reasons i think he was such an interesting artist and character but also it always comes down to the quality of the record and i just really believed in the record specifically for the the lyricism and the story is great but i i was really drawn to the musical portion which is just this crazy mix of hip hop and like jazz harmony and soul kind of inspired melodies and just the way that he was able to combine all those elements was super interesting and it allowed me to talk about 
a lot of the music theory stuff that I love mm-hmm. to talk about, which you can't really do in a traditional rap based, you know, record, which is like a sample based thing. You know, he's actually composing all the chords and he's doing literally everything himself. So, you know, that was really attractive to me to just because this season was really split in half between music analysis and lyrical analysis. That was fun. And you touched on it a little bit how he started creating music in the public eye from such a young age, around 17, 18 years old. And he's definitely had his fair share of antics and has even had situations where he's been banned by countries. Whether you, whether you think it's, it's right or wrong, it, it's as a result of his progression of, and it seems like his creative maturity. And I'm, I'm 25 now. So in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm, I guess technically that's the age where your frontal lobe is supposed to be yeah. fully formed. But I'm thinking back to when I was 16, 17 years old and some of the creative things that I was doing, like writing, music, even some of the conversations I was having, if that was in the public eye, people would probably think I was some sort of like messed up, psycho, someone like that. So I completely understand a lot of the the early antics from Tyler's perspective because it's such a... It's such a responsibility to be in that eye, to be in the public eye at that early of an age. And at the same time, it allows people to see your progression as you get older into your early 20s, mid 20s. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, he's in that unique position. I think uh, Earl Sweatshirt said it best. And he said, um, you know, Odd Future got famous from their rough drafts, you know, like literally the first music they made got was successful, like their very first you know, rough draft. So, yeah, and Earl Sweatshirt was even younger than Tyler. Yeah, I think 15. he was like 14 yeah, or 15 yeah, yeah. or like something. Insane. Yeah, 15. So it's, yeah, I mean, I empathize with the story. And like you, I kind of relate to it. You know, I, I was a skater, kind of punk kid when I was younger. And yeah, if people knew, you know, if the things that I was doing at that age were, were shared to the world, you know, I would probably have a similar reputation. So I think a lot of people kind of see themselves in that story, whether they're as extreme as Tyler, probably not. But I think people recognize, especially now, like it was all in kind of good fun. You know, he definitely did some Mm -hmm. offensive stuff, but it was never out of maliciousness or anything like that. It was just kids trying to get a reaction because they could. That was really what it was. That's a, a bunch of my memories. When I'm looking back at my childhood, a lot of it is just having fun being provocative and knowing that you can get a rise out of other kids or adults by saying certain things or acting a certain way. And so a a lot of the things that Tyler has said or done in the past, it's, I I can imagine it's in a similar vein as that where you're kind of going through that maturity process, but at the same time, you're still a kid and, and you're still having fun and, and you're learning how people react to what you say. And oh, if I push this button, this happens. Or, you know, if I say this, more people pay attention, wh- whether it's good or bad. So it's like he's navigating that in the public eye. Yeah, I mean, there's, an, there's something to be said about like growing up in the public eye as well. You, that usually never really resolves well. Um, there's always some incident, you know, you could think of Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, mm-hmm. people that have been famous since a young age. You know, like everyone else, they go through 
transition phases, they go through rebellious phases and they have a camera in their face, you know, 24-7. And yeah, they just like everyone else, they experiences experience those transitions. It's just that it's magnified under the public eye. So again, it's just I think people should, you know, empathize a little bit more with those those figures. Yeah. And a lot of times it ends up with other issues like it could be mental health yeah, problems, exactly. drug abuse. In extreme cases, people dying, even taking their own life. And like, it's, it seems like very serious and kind of intimidating and, and stressful thing to be, to be put under that pressure. And it seems like Tyler and some of the other artists that you mentioned have, have been able to either reinvent themselves or, or stay away, stay away from those sort of distractions. Yeah, I think uh, Tyler's story is admirable in my eyes because he's really just committed to his craft and again, left that part of himself to his younger self, you know? And like you said, it could end up, it could have ended up way worse. He could have been a drug addict or, you know, yeah, have suicidal thoughts, all that stuff. Like people don't realize that that scrutiny gets to everyone at some point. And um, yeah, a lot of times it just doesn't work out Mm -hmm. very well. So, Again, that's why just kind of to bring it back to season four, that was why I was very much in the school of thought of, you know, Tyler is someone that should have our respect and we should see his story as an admirable one um, and one that we can all kind of learn from. So what was your relationship with podcasts before starting Dissect? How were podcasts or, or long form conversations in your life? Well, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't listen to podcasts. Until season one of Serial. I can't remember when that was now, but like maybe, was that 2015? Maybe 2015. Sounds about right. Yeah. So that was the first podcast that I had ever listened to. And then I kind of got into a few after that. And this all happened when my first daughter was born. And so I'd just be listening to podcasts all the time when I was hanging out with her as it when she was a baby. But I mean, really Dissect was modeled after these audio course, audio basically college courses called the great courses, which are now on like Audible and stuff like that. But before podcasts were really popular, you could download these college courses essentially in like any any subject that you wanted. And they're kind of taught by world famous professors. And I got really got into the music ones. And that's kind of where I got a lot of my music education from was these great courses, specifically the courses of Dr. Robert Greenberg. And you know, he would pick, say, the symphonies of Beethoven, and he would do like one lecture per symphony or one lecture per movement per symphony. And that was really where the idea of dissect came from was like one album, one song per episode. And then I was listening to podcasts. I was like, well, if I just recorded it and published it as a podcast, it's free. And I just put it out there and see what happens, you know? How old were you when you started listening to the great courses? It was when I was in college because I uh, snuck basically, I was a self-taught musician for like 10 or 12 years, something like that. And then I wanted to Mm -hmm. go to college for music because I'd never had any formal education. But you also need to have formal education to get into music programs in college. But I kind of snuck my way into the composition program at Sacramento State. How did you sneak your way in? Well, when you're a composition major, you just submit compositions and then you you can play your main instrument, but it's less of a focus. So I auditioned on piano, but like they... And I was like decent at piano, but like definitely not 
on the level that I could or should have been. They take it less serious because you're a composition major. So it's not like you're a performance major. So they really just grade you on the merit of your compositions, which were, I thought, decent. And I kind of learned how to... I would just write it on a piano and then I would record it into Logic, which is a music program. And then within Logic, you can convert your piano recordings into your MIDI recordings into a score. So I kind of manipulated it into a score and then submitted those. So it kind of looked... And I kind of knew how to read music, but not really. So you you see you wrote it and then you got around the the composition element by putting it into Logic and then it spits out the, the notes yeah, yeah. and the score and everything. Yeah, so it's like I kind of see that... All that, like I just said, like kind of... I snuck in and then when I you know snuck in doesn't mean that you know on day one basically I realized like oh shit like I'm underwater here I have way behind because you're taking college level music theory courses now and I should have been taking mm-hmm. you know elementary school uh, theory classes so <laughs> essentially I used the great courses to fast forward my education I literally took every single great course they offered in music and just listened to them some of them multiple times. And it kind of really caught... I felt like it did a lot to catch me up to where by the time I ended college, one, I didn't drop out. That was a huge accomplishment because that's what my instincts was like. Yeah, you're not fit to be here. And there was some like really embarrassing stuff that happened. And I was like, I should just drop out. But I stuck with it and ended up kind of like graduating on the dean's list in my my yeah. music program. So all that to say the great courses like saved my life in some ways. You're taking these college level theory courses, and then the great courses are the the earlier stage. So you're you're bridging the gap of knowledge essentially with the the great courses that your other students came in with. Yeah, exactly, to the school exactly, and because they're they're built for like they're meant for people that have no formal music education. So it's like I wasn't there wasn't a learning curve I started with. And so yeah, I was like bridging the gap between what I should have known and what I didn't know. I would imagine that would lead to some embarrassing moments if most other people around you know how to read music or or have somewhat of an education already and you have the the musical skills and, and musical foundation, but you don't have the the technical yeah learning it I would I would freak out during the audition if it were if it were me because I would just be wondering like oh yeah are they gonna find out that I can't read music right now yeah that well the audition it's I did it from memory I have a really good memory because you know when you're self-taught that's kind of how you learn is just you know you listen to something you figure out how to play it so you just memorize 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 that actually became an advantage once I learned how to read music like I still can't sight read where shit and but I can memorize shit really, really fast. So I was always playing from memory even until my last days in, in college when on my piano recitals and stuff, I you know did it all, all entirely from memory. But yeah, I mean, there's like literally the first day in my concert band class, which you have to, you know, always have to be a part of some large ensemble. And as a composer who played piano, there's not really a lot of spots for you. So they stuck me in percussion which is, again, something mm-hmm. I know nothing about, really. And so like the first day of concert band, I got put on bass drum, and then they put a score in front of you, and you're supposed to like follow along with the score, which I've never done. I've never played for a conductor before. And then literally the first song or first piece that we play, 
I'm just fucking up the whole time. And so then the, <laughs> the conductor like singles me out from everyone in this, you know, 40 piece ensemble and like, you know, conducts me, just me in front of the whole class, like me playing this bass drum and just not like at all registering. And then was like, yeah, you need to come to my office after class. <laughs> yeah. So it was, from the very start, yeah. it was very embarrassing. It's hard to get away with that for bass drum. I remember when I was playing saxophone through high school, there would be some points where, you know, if someone didn't know how to play a part or they didn't practice coming into the the session or our, our recital, something like that, like the, the practice for it, then one of us would say, you know, I'm just going to like fake this part because there's five or six saxophone players and mm, someone yeah. else can kind of cover it if you were behind, but if you were the bass drum player, you're the only one on the stage 99% of the time and you're keeping the rhythm. So I imagine that's a, like a pants down situation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So were you listening to hip hop while you were studying classical music or were you kind of taking a break from that? Yeah. I mean, I listened to hip hop since I was very young, but when I was in college, it was because I had so much catching up to do and I kind of fell in love with classical music. I was literally just listening to classical music for like however long, four or five years that I was in college. So I didn't really listen to much outside of that. <laughs> Some of the bigger stuff I did, but even like Kanye's project. Well, ironically, a lot of the projects that came out that I've now dissected came out during that time. So for instance, I never even listened to Twisted Fantasy until, I don't know, a couple of years after it was released. I heard like the singles mm-hmm. and stuff, but I wasn't listening to much music aside from what I was studying. So that was an interesting experience to kind of catch up after I graduated. So what made you want to take the next step from recognizing that there's an open space in the the music community in the sense that no one's really applying this type of analysis that's normally reserved to classical music for contemporary music and then actually wanting to do that yourself? What what made you want to dissect the first album to Pimp a Butterfly? Yeah, it's funny. There's, I mean, there's things that I realized in retrospect and I would say like that, that gap that's missing, that formal analysis applied to hip hop was secondary to just my personal desire to understand that album. It really started there. I listened to that album a lot when it came out from from day one, the, the day it came out, and I was just enamored with it. I just never heard anything like it. And also, there was obviously a clear story that was happening, but I didn't feel like I was getting it entirely or even you know, just picking up bits and pieces. And I just knew that if I wanted to understand this album, I would need to do what I used to do in college, which was just spend a lot of time with it and write about it, think about it, pick it apart, research the, you know, the making of it, but also like what was going on culturally and, and in his personal life that kind of went into it, everything that you would do in like a formal paper in a music history class or something. And I used to love doing those papers uh, more than probably anyone in my class. I would, I just loved, I just fell in love with that process. And so I was out of college and I was like, well, what if I just wrote a paper on this essentially? And that was kind of the first the first idea that kind of eventually became dissect was just let me try to figure out this album and use my skills that I learned in in college to do so. But then after like working on it, 
and feeling like, oh, this is like really interesting and it's really holding up to this scrutiny because you never really know if it could. But you were doing it for your own interest too. So in the back of your mind, did that really matter if if it could hold up to scrutiny or, or would you have done it anyway? Say if one or two episodes were released and people were saying, you know, this fucking sucks, which they didn't, would you have kept going for the rest of the album? Just for your yeah, own yeah, analysis. Yeah, 100%. Because I mean, even in season one, there was barely any listeners. So I was 100% doing it for me. I mean, the reason why I even chose to publicize it was they wanted to give me a, like a structure and a format to work in, um, which a- absent of a formal paper, it's like you don't really have a structure. And I didn't really want to do the formal paper thing. And it really, it kind of just pushed me. Like when you have an imaginary audience, for me, because I've, been performing music forever it's like that always pushed me to do your bet like do my best like if i know i had to re- you know do a piano recital in front of 50 people i'm going to practice my ass off so i don't embarrass myself i'm going to do the best that i can because you know you're going to perform it so essentially the podcast format and just the act of publicizing it was the way that i like that i used to kind of push myself to do my best work and to see it through because it ended up being way more work than I thought. You know, it was like, ended up being 22 episodes on, I think, 18 songs and way more research and stuff that I ever imagined that I would do. So, and I was also working full time at this time and I had just had a daughter. So, all that, it was just, you know. So, your plate is pretty yeah, full. Yeah, definitely. To say the yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. I listened to an interview where I heard you say that it takes around 20 hours to produce one 30 minute episode. Yeah, and that, I mean, I would, to be honest, that's probably a modest estimation. The script writing alone takes lots of time, and you have to apply the re- like do the, re- the research one of like just researching the album in general, but then also the individual research that comes up, especially in, a, in an album like Kendrick's, where there's so many historical references that you can't just let them pass by without kind of looking into them. And sometimes looking into one line will then inspire like a three-hour wormhole on on Google. So Yeah, it's easy to get trapped on Google and yeah. YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Especially on things that aren't related to your yeah, work. exactly. So what is your process or what did your process look like on day one? Because I'm sure it's evolved since then. But when you sat down in the, the earlier days of, of the first season of Dissect, what did your daily routine look like? for creating an episode? Where where were you doing it? What was the space like? What was most of your time spent doing? Yeah, I mean, I would always work on it at night after my my daughter and my wife went to sleep. So it was essentially just me on my couch, just on my computer. Once you kind of get into the episodes, it's just listening. Usually I'd listen throughout it in like the day in the car, you know, just have it going when I could. But then also you just sit down and start with the lyric sheet with Kendrick specifically if we're talking about season one it was mm-hmm. look at the you know the lyric sheet was the guide because musically in season one I didn't really touch on much you know it was very lyrical based which has evolved since then but back then it was just lyric sheet just literally line by line just examining the line if any phrases that you need to research you'd research those lines and then you'd write about it go to the next line write about it it's just very you know, methodical line by line, just exactly what the show premise is—a line by line dissection of of these works. And then I record in my garage on a 
$100 microphone that I bought off Amazon with the little pop, $5 pop screen. And I would record it in my hot ass garage or I cold, cold garage or hot because it didn't have any AC or, or heating. <laughs> yeah, depending on the season. Depending on the season in Sacramento, it gets insanely hot in the summer. So and my garage was just insulated and no AC. So it was just, you know, literally sweating and recording and then editing it on logic. This was taking up all of your free time, it sounds like. Because if you have a family, you have a full-time job. That's basically it right there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from my own personal experience podcasting, I have more wiggle room because I'm, I'm single. I don't have any kids. I, you know, most of my free time goes to my family and close friends. So that leaves me with a lot of wiggle room, especially in hours after work during the week and on the weekends too is when I do a lot of catching up outside of my job that I get paid yeah. to do. So I can imagine that the the time restraints are very strict where you had to take advantage of every minute, basically. Yeah, there was definitely never a wasted minute ever, really. And it, I just expanded my free time by not sleeping a lot. So <laughs> that's really how I how I was able to do it. I just sacrificed sleep a lot of the time and because weekends were 100% filled at least during the day with family. So it was always nights. Like there's very rarely a case in those first two seasons that I ever worked on the show in the, during the daytime. What was your full-time job? A creative director for a specialty coffee roasting company in Sacramento. So you're probably against Nespresso then, what we were talking about before the interview actually started. Yeah, I mean... Because I guess it takes away from... Yeah. Specialty coffee, and it's also just not as good. Yeah, mostly just not as I'm lazy. Not as good, but I mean, specialty coffee is a whole rabbit hole. So it's you know, I get why people do the convenient thing for something that you know is just kind of a beverage for them. But in specialty coffee world, it's like you know, kind of your life. So you know, no need to go down that rabbit hole in a, in a casual conversation. You know, I'm not going to call you out for Nespresso. Yeah, <laughs> you were uh, you were seething ever yeah. since I uh... <laughs> yeah. Mentioned in espresso, so so you were passionate. You were passionate about coffee, or you are passionate about coffee. It wasn't just some job that you were kind of doing for the paycheck. You were legitimately passionate about being the creative director. Yeah, I mean, I was really into coffee, and I kind of got into it during college, actually. And then I ended up getting a part-time job at um, it's called Temple Coffee Roasters as just like a register operator at first, and then worked my way to barista, and then work my way to like the trainer and creative or um, director of education and then ended up being the creative director by my my end there. I was there for like five or six years. So I kind of started at the bottom and ended up like kind of creating my own career there. So I really liked what I was doing. You know, the company is great and I like coffee and I liked the creative stuff too. So it was something I was happy doing, but it didn't quite fulfill every kind of creative and educational desire. Um, that's why I kind of started Dissect as a hobby. But and now I get to do it as a job, which is still crazy. Have you ever thought about combining Dissect with your love of coffee in some way? Like having a coffee chat with one of the the artists for the, the album you dissected, like Tyler, the creator, for example. Because now, obviously, you're in a position where you can reach out to their team. And I'm sure... You'll get a response at the least, like 
making some sort of coffee chat series or like a behind the scenes thing with the artist, something in that vein. Yeah, I mean, I mean, more interesting to me would be like dissecting spirit or specialty coffee. That's like true. The that's true. That's a whole another. That's a whole that. other market. It's another open space. Yeah. Classical music <laughs> yeah, analysis applied to coffee. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you could apply the dissect model to, which I would love to do eventually, but um, got got my hands full with the current show now. So, For you, since you've been so engulfed in both classical music and contemporary music, is there a difference for you between someone like Kanye West, his music, and then, you know, Beethoven, for example? Do you see a hard line difference or is it more like Kanye is just three, 400 years ahead of Beethoven, but they, there are a lot of similarities between the creative process. Yeah. I mean, I think across all art, I mean, art is always a reflection of the time in which it's created. So there could never be another Beethoven and there will never be another Kanye West 200 years from now. It's just, there's such, we're all products of, history and our environment and the current state of things. And, you know, we all represent what it means to be alive in 2018 or 2019 or whatever. Art generally, is, you know, music specifically is universal. So the great artists of our day are not all operating in the classical space like they used to because classical music was the main genre of music and the most influential genre of music at that time. So like people like Beethoven... A little bit, I guess, but more people like you know, Franz Liszt or Wagner or someone like those were the rock stars of those days. Mm-hmm. And you now, classical music is not irreverent. Irreverent. What's the word am I looking for? Irrelevant. Irreverent. 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 Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I can't say that word. Yeah, I mean, it's like I it's can't not, say a lot of words. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not totally dead, but it's like who listens to classical music of a small few and, and mostly they're in that world, you know, they're in the, where I came from. So you have to, I think you have to really look at that uh, and realize that people like Kanye West are the Beethovens of our era. And I think the musical output where you would assume Beethoven's superior, I guess I just don't make that assumption. I see Kendrick or I see Kanye working within his time and the tools at his disposal to make the greatest, you know, some of the greatest music that we have today. And that will definitely be the representation of our era in the future. Like you can't name a classical piece of music that is going to represent our times. Like it just, it doesn't exist because there's no, there's no, they don't have impact like Kanye West does. So those people like Kanye West are doing the most to push music forward simply because not only because of their innovation the innovation but you have to i think you have to also consider their impact and people like kanye have the greatest impact so to me all that combines into them being the beethovens of our day yeah i don't think kanye gets enough credit either because he's such a creative genius but then people are so quick to tear him down every time he does something that they perceive as abnormal or out of line, like the the Taylor Swift incident at the Grammys, or even as recent 
as when he went to go visit the White House when he was sitting down with Trump and I forget who the running back was, the, his name from the Cleveland Browns. Um, um, Brad, something Brown. Jim Brown, no, Jim Brown. Brown. Jim Brown, yeah, yeah. If you actually read the transcript of that conversation, he talks about a lot of interesting things going on in America and the black community specifically. He addresses male energy in the household. He talks a bit about his bipolar disorder. He talks about increasing ownership of black... uh, Yeah, increasing ownership of land by black people. He even says he loves Hillary. And Trump and Jim Brown really didn't say much in that conversation. It was basically just Kanye going off and presenting a lot of thought-provoking ideas, a lot, a lot of the m- most thought-provoking ideas that I've come across, at least, and trying to push intellectual diversity above the, the monolithic voice of the Black community. But then the coverage in the news media, people were calling him a house Negro and all this stuff, basically discounting him as a person without actually going into what he said. It seemed like people once he kind of stepped outside of what they thought Kanye was allowed to do or what they thought he should be doing as a music artist, then they weren't willing to engage with him in conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's so much a reflection of, I feel like, just what happens generally today where, I mean, it's kind of a personification or, or a manifestation of like the clickbait culture where it's like we just read headlines and we scroll through news feeds and... We just get surface level stuff and we make a, we a, lot, a lot of times just make assumptions based on that. And Kanye has always fell into that. I mean, there's a certain amount of responsibility that he has for his actions, which aren't always, you know, like the most socially acceptable. I don't know. But I mean, the, the, I always think the intentions behind his actions are typically good. And I think the White House thing is like, yeah, a good example of that where some people just don't believe you should like talk to the enemy or whatever. And I don't think he thought of Trump as the enemy, but a lot of people do. And so just even being in the same room with them, like I think people just get offended by that. But I'm of the mind of like, you know, talk to anyone, especially if you want someone of of power who has, you know, if you have, you have a, a, a direct line to their, to their ear, why wouldn't you use that to, try to, to get them to see a, a, a different light or bring issues that they might not consider. I mean, Kim Kardashian even is doing some great work in prison reform and stuff. So, and, and Trump is involved with that. So I think there is good that can be done by negotiating with someone that you don't agree with all the time or that you find morally you know, reprehensible or something. What's Kim Kardashian's involvement in prison reform? Actually, I, I wasn't aware of that. She is, I mean, she's had, I can't remember all the names, but, you know, a handful of people that have been granted, I think, pardons or basically their sentences were reduced. Um, She basically has kind of hand-selected certain cases where she felt or, you know, the public felt that their sentence didn't, wasn't justified by the crime that they committed and has worked to get them freed. And she's, you know, studying to become a lawyer now and to further that work with prison reform. And I think she recently paired with either Uber or Lyft to like work with, I guess, one of the things in her studies where she, that she realized was the transition from prison to civil life was really difficult. And even just like getting a ride from prison to like somewhere 
was difficult. So she worked with Lyft or, or Uber to form a partnership there to like help people tra- like tra- transport from prison to home, from home to job interviews, just kind of trying to help that transition out more. I don't, I'm not, hopefully I'm speaking to it 100% correctly, but that's what I, I read. So all that to say, I mean, whatever your feelings on Trump is, he's the president of the United States. So if you want to get shit done, there's probably some benefit to uh, having some kind of relationship with him. So I think it's just kind of indicative of Kanye just being polarizing and you know people just having assumptions about him or making judgments about him without really knowing the whole story, which is not exclusive to Kanye. That happens more and more, mm-hmm. I feel like now with a lot of people. So, you know, devil's always in the details. And if you if you fail to do your research, usually you come out with just uneducated opinion. Yeah. And props to Kim K, first of all, I wasn't even aware that she was doing that. And she doesn't do much in the way of long form interviews, at least not that I've seen. So she probably doesn't get as much of a chance to talk about some of these things on podcasts or other outlets on on YouTube, things like that. And about the whole Kanye White House meeting, it seems like we live in somewhat of a cancel culture. I, I see people all the time that say on Twitter, you're canceled for talking to someone else, j- just for talking to someone else w- without even diving into what the context of that conversation was. And I think that people look to get rid of you based on who you're talking to, which doesn't really make sense because we should live in a a culture where it's okay to follow your curiosity. And if it brings you to a certain person, even if they have done some things that are terrible or that the majority of the public doesn't like, if they're, if they're interesting, you can at least try to understand with the position that they're in. You can at least try to understand how that person thinks and what the motivations behind their actions are. It doesn't mean that just because you sit down with someone that you agree with everything they say, but it seems like a lot of people take it that way. Yeah, that's frustrating to me only because I feel like, well, I guess I, I have a more, I feel like I have more ability to do that because for instance, like my father is very conservative I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh in my house. I'm pretty sure he watches Fox News to get his news. So he's like in that space where I'm definitely not. But he's also my dad. And I also know that he's a good person. And having that relationship with him and almost being forced to converse or be a part of someone like that who I probably normally wouldn't if it was just kind of like a choice of my friend, you know, family, you're not, you don't choose your family. And so having that relationship with him and seeing him for more than his just political views has really, I feel like benefited me in terms of like being able to look past political differences that could divide. And I feel like you can learn stuff from everyone. And just because of a political division, I just don't think that's a reason to disregard someone and especially someone disregard someone talking to someone that you don't agree with is even crazier to me. So I just think that whole thing is just super dangerous. And I feel like a lot of it just happens on Twitter. And it's like, I don't even know if that's real. Like, 
Yeah, it seems like a really loud minority of people that are able to shift the conversations. I don't, I don't think the majority of people in the United States, I think a very high percentage of people in the United States are indifferent to Kanye going to the White House or don't have strong, super strong feelings one way or the other using that situation as an example. But then there's a very loud minority on social media that corporations and news media pays attention to for some reason more than the general consensus of the masses. And it seems like they're able to be swayed by those people more often than not. Yeah, and I think it's also just like people searching for content and a story becomes more than it is simply because people just need to put content out there so much now that you're just looking for anything, especially something controversial. I mean, it's been pretty proven statistically that like articles and headlines that evoke controversy get more uh, engagement than positive news stories. Mm -hmm. So... It, then it ties back into advertising. And it's like, if you're trying to grow your social media platform or your news platform, it's like it entices you to kind of perpetuate that negativity because you're getting clicks and you're getting comments and you're getting views and you're getting more advertising dollars. It all kind of ties back into this, like, just kind of just cycle and this funnel of stuff that I don't even think the people doing it realize what they're doing. You know, they're just kind of following what's working, but then mm-hmm. you're starting now to see the kind of, now that we're like 10 years, 15 years deep into whatever this is that we're living in, you're starting to see the effects that it's having in terms of just the general feel. It's really, I feel like it is starting to affect our, just the energy of the of the world. You know, we're on social media so much now that it's like kind of a big part of everyone's life. And it's, you know, as much as you think it's fake, I just don't think it is. And I've, and I think, you know, that animosity that's generated from a place like Twitter does translate into your your kind of physical life. I mean, I know that from experience from just dealing yeah. with like dissect, you know, on a very small level. It's like, yeah, you get like the random Twitter dude that has like 12 followers and an egg for the avatar and he's just talking shit about you. And you're just like, what? Yeah, he has, he, <laughs> he, has, he has no photo or if he does, the the most hilarious ones to me are, are sometimes celebrities will call out people that talk shit to them or they'll retweet them and I'll go into it. A, a guy that's using horrible language and you click on his profile picture and he's like father of four, like, <laughs> I love Susie. I love Susie. Like, bring yeah. his kids to soccer practice. I'm like, what is this guy doing? Like, he's literally in the car with his kids, yeah, tweeting at public figures, saying the most disgusting things. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. I would definitely it, feel uh, like people use it as an outlet to funnel like their their personal unhappiness or frustration with their own life or the the ang- the built up anger for whatever reason. Like, I just feel like it's for some people this just kind of this alter ego that they get to play on the internet that helps them kind of like channel out some of that aggression. For you, I would guess the two things that you get called out for the most would be people that are upset that you're dissecting the art. I know there's some people out there that think that you shouldn't be dissecting music you should just let it be how it is and then the second thing i would guess is that people say that you're white and you have 
no business dissecting the the albums of black music artists? I would say not the first one at all. Um, oh, really? Well, here's the thing about criticism, though. Like, typically, because it's not on social media, because it's a podcast, I feel like most people, if they turn it on and don't like it for whatever reason, they just turn it off and they're not going to take the time to come find me. So I think a lot of the the criticism that I would hear just kind of stays private. The second one is something that I definitely thought about in the beginning a lot about. I would say that I was expecting way more of that criticism than I eventually got. I would say that I don't get a lot of that still, which surprises me. And I think hopefully that is because one, if again, like I just don't hear from people that don't like that because they just turn it off and or whatever about it. Or they actually listen to it and they hopefully see that I'm doing it in a in the most honest way possible and, and at least as honest as I can be about it. And that I'm really doing it... I mean, it literally started as an education for myself. It was like even a story that applies to this. Like before I even started writing... Or maybe it was when I just very first started writing it. I talked to someone at my work about it and I told him the idea and I told him the album. And then essentially he came back and was like, Well, what what do you know about this culture? Like you're like you have you have nothing to do with this culture at all. And I thought about that a lot. And here's how I kind of reduced it in my head. It was like, okay, yeah, that's true. I don't come from that culture. I've I've enjoyed the product of that culture my entire life. But yeah, what do I know about growing up, like specifically season one? What do I know about growing up in Compton or being in a gang or dealing with whatever, you know, people from those areas deal with? Yeah, not a lot. So one one way to treat that question is to say, yeah, okay, throw my hands up. I don't know. Then I will just not do the podcast and I just and I'll kind of give up. The other way to look at it, which is what I ended up looking at it like, was yeah, I don't know anything. And this would be a great way for me to learn about it and eventually share my learnings with others. That's what I had ultimately chose to do. And I've learned so much specifically from season one still is probably the most I've ever learned from any body of work that I've ever tackled. And that goes back to my collegiate days. I'm so happy that I did that because I researched stuff that I never would have researched otherwise. I learned about some of the stuff in our country's history that I had no idea occurred. I learned more about the dynamics that you know create a place like Compton and all the historical things that even go into a place like that existing in the world. You know, I I learned so much from that just through Kendrick's experience and studying Kendrick's experience, which he so beautifully and poetically shares on To Pimp a Butterfly and using that as my map, using music as my map to the world essentially and learn and basically getting this education. Me, for, being a musician my entire life, it was just the perfect way for me to learn. So that was how I treated that question. And I think anyone that li- actually sits down and listens to the show and just doesn't judge it by, here's some white guy analyzing black music, which is a very Twitter thing to think. I think hopefully they hear the honesty and I hopefully I don't come off as like an expert 
hopefully I come off as someone who just took the time to research and learn and sharing those learnings with the, the audience. I can imagine that's a, a tough situation to be in going into season one, thinking about the black versus white perspective. I think it kind of goes back to empathy too, because you can you, you don't have to be black or be white to understand what either side goes through and to learn about people and to have a genuine interest in people beyond skin color and diving into the actions that people choose to make. Podcasts, it's an interesting outlet to do it on because it's it's your voice only unless you're a huge podcaster unless you're, unless you're like uh not a huge podcaster but you don't have video for dissect so like someone like Joe Rogan everyone knows that he's this white ball guy that that sits in a studio that's jacked with tattoos but a lot of my favorite podcasters I have no idea what they look like unless I go look them up so if someone listened to the entire season and it, listen to all of the the cultural ramifications, the musical ramifications, the philosophical perspective. And I'm I'm sure internally you're going through philosophical shifts as well. Cause I know I did when I was listening to the first season and the seasons beyond that, that if you find out that the person that was recording the episode is white and then your opinion changes, then that like that to me, that doesn't make sense. That says it's more about you as the listener and your your motivations as a listener. I, th- I think that, you know, I, I have no idea what, what Kendrick thinks of the podcast. I don't know what discussions you've had with, with him behind closed doors and things like that. But as someone who puts podcasts out into the world and, and someone who writes articles, I always appreciate when people take the time to learn about experiences that aren't their own, regardless of, you know, what side of the the fence they they sit on. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I get, I almost get frustrated with conversations of race, which I understand why they need to occur. That's, I get that a hundred percent, but it's like, and I, I really don't want to come off like, virtuous or something but it's like i really really try to like see people as just people and i i really big on the idea of like the universal human experience and to me and kendrick has actually talked about this in interviews like he he had never really understood why specifically white people connected with his music because it was so much of like the experience that he had in compton but apparently someone told him like well, you're conveying struggle and everyone feels struggle. And that's that's really the way that I look at not only Kendrick, but all music, all art, all human emotions. Like human emotions are not exclusive to certain races or genders or whatever the case may be. Like we all feel, you know, we share 99.9% of the same DNA. We all feel joy. We all feel pain. We all feel anger, frustration. Those universal experiences take on specific stories. You know, they're expressed through specific stories of someone's specific experience. But at the end of the day, you can reduce everyone's experience to universal feelings. And that that interplay between the specific and the universal is something I actually talk about 
specifically on dissect, like in these words, like that's really what I'm trying to do when I dissect any work of art, specifically music is, okay, here's a specific story and we're going to take the details of the specific story and analyze them in a very granular fashion. But always I'm looking to take that specific story and make it universal. And typically I do that in the conclusion section of the episodes where I really try to take what we just learned throughout the entire episode and tie it in to something that we can all relate to. And most of the time that is the case. You know, you can typically reduce someone's experience into those more universal terms. And that to me, that to me is just indicative of trying to view everyone as a human being first and gender, race, whatever, second, you know. And those are the conversations I'm interested in having. You know, the conversations about race and gender and stuff, again, have their place. And those are more, those are more focused to me on how do we get back to viewing everyone as people first and not viewing people as black, as white, as female, as male. How do we get back to treating everyone equally as a human being first and having that be our number one priority? Yeah, I don't think that comes off as virtuous at all. I, I, I try to keep the, the same through line in, in my day to day, which is that I value people's actions and intellectual diversity over skin color, race, gender, whatever. If, if I agree with you or if I don't agree with you or if I think you're an asshole or if I think you're a good person, anything in between, it's, it's based off of what you do and your ideas. And then you just happen to be a woman or you happen to be black or you happen to be white. It's, it's not a primary part of your intellectual makeup. And you cover a lot of artists that I, I think uh, think in similar fashions. Kanye says the same thing about how there really is no monolithic voice of the black community. Like one person, like Al Sharpton, doesn't represent the black community. It, it's every, there's only your experience, and that experience does not necessarily translate to millions of different people. Frank Ocean talks about some similar things, especially in super rich kids, where he alludes to the fact that there are very rich, wealthy teenagers that have shitty lives because their their parents don't give a shit about them or they're not home all day or they're just popping pills, have easy access to drugs and end up making terrible decisions and, and kill themselves in extreme circumstances. But it's, I think, the same way. And it seems like a, a lot of artists that you covered think in the same way too. And it feeds off of each other clearly in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely agree. I think maybe I'm just a, generally attracted to those types of thinkers, but I do think that is, well, I don't know. I'd have to think about it more, but I definitely agree that I'm, I'm attracted to those artists and attracted to that message. And I think you, I mean, you can definitely talk about specific experience and even you know, Kendrick talks about racism specifically and in, in the generational effects of racism. You can do that in a way that I feel like is not like alienating or I don't know, off putting or, you know, it's just, it's just a rea- it's like a reality of his specific situation. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think, again, to go back to, to your point, I think 
yeah, I'm just generally attracted to that message. I, I, it's funny, I'm just trying to think about, I never really thought about it in those terms before, but I guess that is definitely true. What do you think about the future of podcasting? How do you see it evolving as a platform? It's hard to, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think obviously it's just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I wonder how, if that can continue and if it will. I think it's a way bigger industry than it was even three years ago when I started doing it. And I wonder if I started now, what kind of traction I'd be able to get just because it just seems like everyone has a podcast now. Um, not that I'm against it at all. I think it's a great medium. I think it's, I think it's, there's such a wide variety now in the medium, which is really cool to see. You know, you have conversational podcasts, you have narratives, you have journalistic style, you have news, you have sports podcast. Like it's just like, I love how specific that they get that you can really just find content that feels curated just for you. Um, you know, if you want, if you're a super fan of, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings, there's a podcast just on the Sacramento Kings. Or if you're a super fan of Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, there's a podcast that, you know, goes through each song and analyzes it. Like there just seems to be something for everyone. So I love that aspect about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see if... Like Serial Season 1 was a great kind of benchmark for podcasting. It's what got a lot of people like myself into podcasting. And I want... I wonder what the next kind of serial movement will be. Like to me, there's a lot of space in the fictional, fictionalized podcast world where scripted stories with actors and stuff, I feel like that could be really expanded upon. There's a few that made some some noise, but nothing like I just wonder if we'll ever get like a blockbuster podcast. Those are interesting because it, it feels like you're listening to a movie. I kind of love that. And you can read a, a book, obviously, to get across fiction, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a surreal experience to have these premeditated storylines and different voice actors saying different things and this whole story put together where, where it's done so well. It really kind of comes together like a movie in your head. At least that's what I feel like when I listen to some of these episodes. So it's like an interesting space to be in. Yeah, I think, and I think with additional money that's coming into podcasts, you'll see probably start seeing more of them because those are the most costly ones to make. So I can see why it would, you know, someone wouldn't want to invest too much money into it. But now with the revenue that you can get with podcasts, I think I would predict that you'd start to see more of those types. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think. I think more average, quote unquote, average people should have podcasts. I just think it's a great excuse to sit down and have a conversation. Like, I mean, me and you have never met, yet we've been talking for an hour and had a great conversation about really, I feel like, important things. So it just kind of gives, builds that space out in your life to like have these moments and these conversations. Cause, you know, just for example, you and I would never have talked for an hour straight if it weren't for a podcast, you know? No, no one ever takes the time, really. A, a lot of the conversations that I have in real life are kind of superficial. I realize that now that I'm podcasting more frequently, more than I had in the past, where if I have an interaction with someone, I'll go back in my head and say, why did I say that? I, I wasn't actually mm. thinking that, yeah. but it just kind of came out of my mouth yeah. <laughs> without even thinking about it. And so it's kind of like these superficial interactions, but 
also, I don't know if you felt this way. I use way less fillers in my speech, like uh or um, since I've been podcasting because I have to go back and listen <laughs> to my own voice so frequently. Yeah. And when I do, A, I don't like listening to my own voice. It makes me cringe. I don't know why. I think it's just because the way it sounds in my head is is so much different than what it sounds like when I'm listening to it back through logic or something like that. But it's made me more self-analytical of the way that I speak. Yeah, I think for me, well, I I always think that and then I listen back to an interview like this and I'm like saying um all the time. But mine's like literally just said um. (laughs) But mine's like a scripted show. So I feel like it's not the same as always having conversations where I probably get would get more refined. But I would definitely say podcasting in general has made me a way better critical thinker. That's for sure. That's because mm-hmm. I'm scripting all the time and writing. But even, yeah, even conversations like this, I feel like... I think it's just the whole imaginary audience thing. It's like, pe- like 10 people could listen to this, but we're talking right now as if, you know, this is going to go... It's literally just going out into the world. And I think that's literally why I started Dissect as a podcast meet like format was giving myself that imaginary audience. And I think there's something to that. When you hit record, it focuses you in and you're not going to just talk about superficial stuff or you can't. Like you can't have an hour and a half conversation about, you know, superficial stuff all the time. We kind of just fill those, we use those superficial fillers to have the 30 second conversation that we have to have with our coworker as we're passing by in the hallway or something. But yeah, I mean, I feel like podcasting is great because you don't really need all that much. Like, like I started with just a hundred dollar microphone and anyone can just buy a couple of cheap mics and record it into their phone even and give themselves an excuse to have great conversations and learn more about people, but also more about your own thoughts. Yeah, you would never think that people want to listen down or sit down and listen to one and a half, two, even three hour conversations. It seems counterintuitive because of what we were talking about before with all of the, the headlines and the click, the clickbait. Mainstream media has been built on getting people to click into things and and hopefully read through them. But... W- even if they didn't, it still counts in the stats. And then that's what they use to sell advertising revenue and all, all these things like that. And I think that the easy accessibility of everyone being able to essentially create their own show, whether it's a podcast or a Twitter page or a YouTube channel, you have so much talent and the best of the best rise to the top. And that takes away from people watching things on on both the left and the right, like Fox News, CNN. I think the average person that watches Fox is, is something like 57 or yeah, 58, yeah. something like that. So it, you have people coming in that are younger, have fresh ideas that have an easily accessible platform where they can just sit in front of a computer or a microphone and press upload and maybe more people watch it than tune in to CNN in a night. And then CNN sees that and says, oh, shit, like we got to step up our game. So I think that indirectly contributes to the clickbait controversial headlines with not the death of mainstream media. I think there will always be some sort of TV subscription and news service. But 
the YouTube channels and the, the podcasting world is definitely pulling people away from that because it seems like people crave those in-depth conversations and context. I think context is so important because it's not just these one word headlines that flash across the screen or a quote that's just pulled out of nowhere from 2011 with no preface and trying to like draw conclusions about people. And that's the hopeful part for me is like, yeah, that, that trend is real and, and people are searching for, I think it just comes down to like real, real people. Like podcasts typically aren't edited, especially, you know, conversational ones. The best ones aren't at all. I feel like, like Joe Rogan's a good example of just unedited. Here's what it is. Just upload it. This is what happened. I think people just want that realness. They want people, like, even like YouTube, YouTube, like the big YouTubers, it's like they're talking directly into a camera at you, low editing. You know, they're just in their bedroom half the time. And turns out people just want to hear people say interesting things and they don't need the production that goes around it a lot of the times. So I think that's to me a kind of a hopeful trend. And especially because it's, you know, coming from or dictated by our, our younger people, that's good to know that there's that that desire. Um, and yeah, podcasting is a great medium for that. And it also, it's weird because podcasting, it's like, yeah, one one aspect of it is like almost against this stimulus culture of like swiping through stuff really fast and you're going to have two-hour conversation. But also the other part of it is that you can listen to it while you're doing other stuff. So it actually... Add stimulation to what would become what would previously be unstimulated activities like dishes or driving or whatever. So it's like I see I see that kind of dualistic quality where it works perfectly because yeah, we do crave more stimulation, but we also crave those contextualized conversations. So podcasts actually fits both of those needs simultaneously. Yeah, it's contextualized conversations. And efficiency, like you were saying, you can do whatever you want to do and listen to a podcast. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks sometimes. I, I actually prefer holding an actual book for some reason. I don't know. But when I'm when I'm listening to a podcast, I walk to work every morning, it takes me about twenty-five minutes, walk back from the office, same length of time. It depends if I'm going to the gym or not. But it's kind of this absent-minded time where you're learning new things, taking on different perspectives. And it's almost for me between 50 minutes and an hour every single day. That doesn't really seem like that much time, but it adds up over the course of months and a year where you can just take in all this information that you really can't in other forms of media, which is why I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, that makes me think of like going back to the great courses before podcast really popped off like i was using those courses and you know kind of upgrading my education in the same way that you would listen to a podcast so i just put on one of those lectures and clean the house or do whatever but like yeah but then all, you know all accumulated i ended up listening to like hundreds of hours of music education in a way that where i didn't have to sit in a classroom or you know drive somewhere to go take a class or all the obstacles that a formal education or pay even the money that you have to pay, you know, all those obstacles are kind of negated by, well, one, the great courses back then, but also now podcasts, because you can really find super educational podcasts, or even sometimes conversations are just as educational. So yeah, I mean, it's a, to me, it's a really, really beautiful medium. And um, I hope it just 
continues its, its success. You know, a lot of people predict that it's a bubble, but maybe in some aspects it is, but I don't think the medium is going to go away. I don't think so. I think people love it way too much. And it's free too. Like you were saying, there's the most podcasts are free. You can just tune into them whenever you want. I take notes on podcasts. A lot of times someone will ask a question. So I'm just stopping in the middle of the street and pulling out my note note uh, note app on my iPhone and just writing questions down randomly or a moment happens in a podcast. So it's kind of like a free education almost. If you want to be a good podcaster that interviews people and has conversations with people, you, you have this free catalog of thousands of voices at your disposal because there's no podcasting school or classes that I know of. There are probably a few, but why do that if you can listen to all these great people do it? Yeah, I mean, there's no need for that. and It, it, it almost is against what even podcasting is to have some kind of formal education of it just seems silly. Although that's probably coming um, sometime down the pipeline. But it's like, would you like... I was, you could probably you would probably major in podcasting within the next yeah. 10 years. I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a podcast, seriously, like a podcast major or like a creative director of podcasts or like yeah. something like an education certificate or some sort of college course where you can learn how to become a podcaster. I would not be surprised if it's an official program sometimes. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. So I want to respect your time. I, I have two questions to end off on. The first one is, was or, or what kind of holy shit moment stands out to you from doing the research for Dissect where you figured out some cryptic message or realized a connection in the podcast where you're sitting in your basement and, and you realize something, whatever it is, like a lyric or some sort of motif. Is there anything that kind of stands out to you where you just had this moment of intense realization? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I have them every season. Is there one that stands out? It could be recently, yeah. it could be I'm trying to think. first season. I mean, there's obvious ones like the whole Frank Ocean's Blonde season three, where he divides the entire album in half with the beat switch and nights. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I remember that. Even on the same album on the last song where he says, how far is a light year to end the the song in the album and then you realize that the that song is the actual you know abbreviated length of a light year that one stood out how did you figure that out were, were you searching something on google did you just happen to look at the length of the song and then the beat switch on nights i think was out there either one of the i can't remember which one was already there one of those that i discovered and the other one i just read about there's some on Kanye's season, there's definitely some couple of oh shit moments, mostly with music theory. How, like, for instance, the end of without going too crazy into music theory, Devil in a New Dress has a chord progression that repeats that mm -hmm. doesn't resolve and it never hits the, ho the quote unquote home chord that it should throughout the entire song. So it's just basically just tension, tension, tension. And then you realize Runaways, that first piano note resolves that tension. So that one was like super that one was one of definitely one that comes to mind. And then the transition from Runaway last note to Hell of a Life was really cool too because it was it's a, it's a basically it sounds like the same instrument, but the interval the basically what 
the note that Runaway ends on and the one that Hell of a Life begins with makes an interval of a tritone, which is the devil's interval is what it's called. It's like the dissonant one. And so that kind of fed into Hell of a Life, which I thought was clever. Some of this stuff I just don't know if it's accident or not. By the time this airs, I'll have a bonus episode on Igor out. But um, that one was huge. So the last note on Are We Still Friends, the last song on Igor, doesn't resolve. It should play an F and it plays a B flat. So basically the whole album ends on tension. There's no formal resolve. But if you play the first note of the first song, which is a synthesizer playing an E flat for like 30 seconds, it resolves the tension. Like that's the note that it should have resolved on, on Are We Still Mm -hmm. Friends? So basically the the entire album is a loop, which ties in thematically to Tyler chasing this lover, letting him go, and then asking at the end, uh, are we still friends? You know, can't imagine his his self without this person in his life, but then asking him to be friends starts the whole cycle over again. So it's a musical idea that reflects the actual cyclical process that he's going through with this person, which was probably the coolest discovery that I've found in all of my dissect seasons. That was really, really clever. And he actually like confirmed it pretty much on Twitter that it was intentional. So that was really a recent one that that comes to mind. All this to say, I would say... I feel like I'm getting a... Oh, good. What's I was say, all this to say that like... Yeah, maybe I didn't... If, if it's too technical, like I explained it better on the show for one, but also... No, I was going to say, I feel like I'm getting a live dissect analysis yeah. right now. I, th- I feel like I'm going to get a bill from Spotify yeah. as soon as this recording is... Yeah. But all that to say, like, these artists are paying close attention to the, you know, the details of their album to these very granular levels that warrant, to me, warrant analysis to warrant our time. And, and there's so much we can learn. There's so much more to music than just the surface level. And that's really what the show is about is getting mm-hmm. a little bit deeper with the songs that we already love, continuing to build that connection that you have with music. Like there's a reason why you love music the way that you do. Like most people love music and sometimes it's hard to articulate why past the lyrics because most people aren't musicians and they can't explain why music makes them feel the, the way that it does. But there's reasons for it. And a lot of the reasons for it, aside from just music being this beautiful abstract creation is that these artists are putting the time in to create these emotions and that we, that resonates so deeply within us. So that's really what the show's mission statement has become is like, I'm going to explain why you love the music that you love that like, I'm going to try to formulate that into words so that you can understand that connection even stronger and deeper. Yeah. And you did a beautiful job. The last question that, I have is I'll use Tyler the Creator since that's the most recent season. If Tyler the Creator was in my kitchen and he switched spots with me and you had five minutes to talk to him right now, what topics or questions would you want to hit on? I mean, the first thing I would say is thank you. And I would say that to all the artists that dissected, more than anything, I would try to express appreciation on behalf of their audience because I don't think we do that enough, especially now. I think we view content because there's so much content, we've come to devalue it a little bit. 
and even in the way that we consume music now, you know, I think promotes that a little bit, unfortunately. Like there's not a commitment that we make. You know, typically you had to buy a record or you had to buy a CD. And because you purchased it, if you didn't like it on the first listen, you would probably listen to it a few more times only because you spent the money on it. Yeah, I had a Will Smith CD and a 50 Cent CD and two Linkin Park CDs that I stole from my brother that I probably listened at least you know 80 to 100 times each because that's all that I yeah. had. I feel like 25 is the, almost the cutoff for that where after that, you probably had the iPod first generation. Yeah. But I remember having a CD player for like a year and a half before that. So to go back to your question, I would always want to appreciate, you know, show the appreciation first. But as far as specific questions, it'd all mostly be about specific chord progressions, specifically with Tyler too, like chord progressions, instrumentation choices. I would really want to get past the surface level questions that they typically get. And because I'm a musician Mm -hmm. and because most journalists that they speak to in interviews are not musicians, my angle would definitely be focused talking about on the music and not about the politics involved or the, you know, the gossip or the gossip style questions that you just typically hear. Like, and mostly that's because journalists are musicians and they don't know the questions to ask musicians. No offense to most journalists, but I would really keep it with the actual music only because that's what I'm interested in and that's what Dissect is about. So I can't think of specific questions only because like I would literally go through each song and write specific questions about certain lines or certain choices in, you know, instrumentation or or things like that. But it would definitely be just like the show is, it would just they'd be super granular questions focused on the music. Well, speaking of appreciation, I hundred percent appreciate your time. I want to thank you again for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Yeah, yeah. That was so, great, man. Yeah, th- thank you again. I can't say enough how much I appreciate your time. I know you have a lot going on. I can't wait for season five. Yeah, dude, thank you. That was great. You, uh, you're definitely a better interviewer than most of the people I've talked to. So I appreciate you doing your research and, and driving a great conversation. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I definitely gain a lot of confidence from my research. I, I like doing the research. Yeah which I know I don't have to tell you, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I really do en- enjoy the whole podcasting process. Not just, I feel like the interview is kind of like the celebration of the research and questions that you took the time to form beforehand. And then once you press records, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's definitely a great way to look at it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Auxoral Podcast with Cole Kuchna. You can stream Dissect Season 4 with Tyler, the creator, out right now. And if you haven't already, don't forget to go check out Seasons 1 through 3 with Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, and Frank Ocean. Love you. Thank you for listening. Until next time.